Good morning. Good morning, and thanks for the strong greeting, and welcome to Peninsula Bible Church again. My name is not that strong. My name is Scott Grant, one of the pastors and elders here, and uh, greetings to you once again, and uh, greetings to those of you who are joining us by live stream. Uh, it's great to be with you. It's great to be in the Word of God. Uh, we are once again in the book of Ezra, which we have been for the last uh, several weeks. So in, uh, in C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, the conceit is that there's a senior devil who is advising a junior devil concerning how to discourage a new convert so that the new convert won't follow the enemy, and the enemy, of course, is God. So in one of the letters, Screwtape, that is the senior devil, writes to the junior devil this, the great thing is to prevent his doing anything. His, that is the subject here, the new convert. As long as he does not convert it into action, it does not matter how much he thinks about this new repentance. Let the little brute wallow in it. Let him, if he has any bent that way, write a book about it. That is often an excellent way of sterilizing the seeds which the enemy, that's God, plants in a human soul. Let him do anything but act. No amount of piety in his imagination and affections will harm us, that's the devils, if he can keep it out of his will, if we can keep it out of his will. The more often he feels without acting, the less he will ever be able to act, and in the long run, the less he will, the less he will be able to feel. The key thing from evil's perspective is to keep this new convert from acting on the Word of God, from converting the Word of God into action. So today, finally, we are going to meet Ezra, the man for whom the book of Ezra is named, and he is a man who converts the Word of God into action. How does he do it? The short answer is that Ezra was intentional. He set his heart. So today, set your heart. Set your heart. Be intentional. Set your heart to do what? Well, the answer to that is the long answer. And to get to that answer, we have to get into our text today, which is Ezra chapter 7. Now, when we set out to study the book of Ezra and to preach through it, I'm uh, Paul Taylor, with whom I am team teaching this uh, really interesting book. He approached me right at the beginning of the whole thing before we even really dived into it. And he says, I really want to do Ezra chapter 3. Now, Ezra chapter 3 is that great chapter where they lay the foundation of the temple, the returned exiles come back from exile, they they, uh, lay the foundation of the temple, and there's this great rejoicing, but there is also weeping for some. And Paul says, I really want to teach that passage. Problem. I wanted to teach that passage. But out of the generosity of my heart, I said, Paul, you can teach Ezra chapter 3. Later, however, I came back to him. And I said, I would really like to preach Ezra chapter 7. And out of the generosity of his heart, he said, you can teach Ezra chapter 7. So all is well in PBC land. Now, I wanted to teach Ezra chapter 7 because of one particular verse, Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, which we will get to directly. 
So um, first of all, then, we are introduced for the first time to this man by the name of Ezra. So in Ezra chapter 6, we found last week that the returning exiles have finished the temple. Not only do they lay the foundation, they finish work on the temple, they celebrate the completion of the temple, uh, they celebrate the Passover again and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and there's this great joyous celebration. So now Ezra chapter 7 picks up the story some 57 years later. After all of that exuberance of finishing this great task, then you actually have to continue following the Lord and worshiping the Lord, and that's where Ezra comes in. So in the first five verses, we are introduced to Ezra, and Ezra, we are told, is a priest, and we're given all of this information about his priestly pedigree. He can can trace his heritage all the way back to Aaron, who is the first chief high priest. And so here's a man who is qualified, at least by heritage, for the task that God has given him to lead God's people. So he has this right pedigree. But what else do we learn about him? We learn this in uh, Ezra 7, verse 6. Ezra was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord was on him. So the king at this point is Artaxerxes. He's the king of Persia, and he grants Ezra everything he wants concerning going back to Uh, Jerusalem, and being involved in the temple worship back there. So we learn that he's not only a priest, but he's a scribe, and he's a scribe who is intensely involved with the Word of God. He's skilled in the law, meaning that he can understand it, he can interpret it, he can dive into it, he can apply it, he can teach it. He is a skilled scribe. He has a priestly pedigree, and he's also a skilled scribe. He's skilled in the law of God. Now, the law of God was given through Moses, uh, this word Torah, that's applied to the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, But the word Torah, the basic meaning of that is instruction. So this is the instruction of the Lord. And the instruction of the Lord obviously is included in all the Scriptures. Ezra was particularly focused on the first five books, and, and especially the statutes and the ordinances and the rules contained within it, but he was skilled in everything they had at that point of the Word of God. And, of course, we then want to be involved in the Word of God as well, all of the Scriptures. We want to see if we can get ourselves a little bit skilled also. So the hand of the Lord was on Ezra, meaning God's empowering presence was upon Ezra so that the king granted Ezra everything that he wanted. Uh, the king may or may not be predisposed to the Word of God, to the law of God, but it is Ezra who is living out the word of God, as we're going to see, and that makes um, the king really predisposed to grant whatever Ezra wants. The hand of God is upon him, so he's able to do what God calls him to do. Okay, let's uh, pick it up at uh, verse 9. For on the first day of the first month, he, Ezra, began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. So here, the first task for Ezra is to go back to Jerusalem, and he goes with a company of others in order to lead people there and then to be involved in the worship at the temple. And again, we see that the hand of the Lord is on him. Now it's called the good hand of the Lord, God's empowering presence, God's good empowering presence. So why is the hand of the Lord on Ezra? Well, we've got to read a little bit further to understand that the hand of the Lord is on Ezra because he was devoted to the Word of God. He was devoted to the law. 
because he was devoted to the law, the hand of God was on him. Implication for us, be devoted to the Word of God. If you are devoted to the Word of God, the hand of God, that is God's empowering presence, will be with you. So now what did Ezra do because he was devoted to the Word of God? We read that in verse 10. And this is the verse that really captured me. It's captured me for a long time. This is why I wanted to preach Ezra chapter 7. Verse 10, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So he set his heart. He had set his heart. At some point, at some point prior, Ezra determined in his heart, in his whole being, to devote his whole being to the law of God, to the Torah, to the instruction of the Lord. So he was very committed to the word of the Lord. So he set his heart. Now, he set his heart to engage with the word of God in three ways. First of all, to seek the word. He sought the law of God. He made it a quest. So the, 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 the little translation would be seek here. It says study. The translation in most of our versions is he, he set his heart to study the law, but really the basic meaning for that whole thing is to seek. He sought the word. He sought the law of God. Didn't, didn't you know, not simply to, to know it, of course, because he also set his heart to do the law. So it's not simply to satisfy some curiosity. It's not simply to know the word, although he needed to know the word, of course, but he wanted to know the word in order to do the word. And then he also set his heart to teach the word. He had a, a, spe- he had a special call as a priest and as a scribe to teach the word. So that's what he did. He sought, he did, he taught. So what do we do? We set our hearts. We set our hearts, our whole being, to engage with the Word of God. Now, there are multiple ways to do this, and you should consider multiple multiple approaches to engage with the Word of God. This is one way. You come here on a Sunday morning, someone opens up the Word of God, someone preaches, you listen. That's one way. That's an important way. But you need to do this on your own as well. You need to seek the Word of God. You need, to be, you need to set your heart. You need to be intentional about this. Now, be spontaneous, of course. Just, you know, whenever it occurs to you, open your app or take out your Bible or what's that verse again and, and, and read and, and study or meditate or whatever. But, but also set a plan. Be intentional about this whole thing. So I, I use multiple approaches. I, I have a study plan, that, a reading plan, actually, that takes me through the whole Bible in three years goes back and forth between the Testaments, and if I'm faithful to it every day, I get through the whole Bible in three years, and then I start again. Uh, I go on some retreats, three-day retreats, just by myself, and I always engage in the course of those retreats for over the course of three days with one or two texts maybe, and I read the same text over and over and over again just to see what occurs to me, to see what pops out and to see how God might be ministering to me, to my heart, through the Word. And then also at any one time, I am going deep into one particular text, as I am doing today. I've spent a lot of time in Ezra chapter 7 going deep into it to see what God has for me and ultimately for us in it as well. 
Uh, Eric Soderberg is one of our elders, and he uses this very interesting methodology, which I've never heard from anyone else, but he stumbled upon this about 10 years ago, in which he just decided to find one particular text and camp on it for about two months, three months, or for however, for however long he felt like the Lord wanted him to be in it, and he would just mine that for everything it was worth. Maybe one chapter, two, three, four months in one chapter, and then feeling at some point, maybe it's time to move on to see what else he can find, to see what other text is out there that the Lord might lead him to, and then he'd camp out again for two, three, four months. So be intentional about engaging with the Word of God. So here, seek the Word. Set your heart to seek the Word. So this means that when you open the Bible, it is a quest. You are on a quest. You're not simply looking for information. You're, you're, on, a, you're on a quest. You're on a, you're on a mission to find. And, and, and this, this opens up a whole world for you to say, what am I going to find here? Uh, it's, who knows what I'm going to find? Am I going to find instruction? Am I going to find direction? Am I going to find uh, a challenge? Am I going to find encouragement? What am I... What am I going to find here? Who knows what I'm going to find? That makes it an adventure. It's a quest. Make a quest in the Word of God. See what you find there. Maybe you will find something that makes sense of everything. Maybe as you make a quest into the Scriptures, you will find a whole new world. Especially, set your heart to seek God in the Scriptures. God, it's the Word of God God reveals himself in his word, so look for God in the scriptures. Especially then, look for how God reveals himself in Jesus Christ. This is very easy to do, of course, in the New Testament, but it's also something important to do in the Hebrew scriptures because the Hebrew scriptures anticipate Christ. You will see as we preach the book of Ezra from the Hebrew scriptures that we are often showing you how this all is fulfilled in Christ. Oftentimes, when we're preaching from the New Testament, we will go back to the Hebrew Scriptures to show you where all of this came from, how the Hebrew Scriptures anticipate Christ. So God is waiting for us in the Scriptures, in all his splendor and majesty and beauty and tenderness. Who is he? What has he done? What is he doing? What will he do? What does he mean to me? What does he have for me today? Who is he? He's waiting for us in the scriptures. Make a quest. It's like a a treasure hunt. It's like a good mystery. It's like a well-wrapped gift. Who doesn't like those things? Crack it open. Make a quest. Seek the word. Seek the word. Seek God in the word. Not simply to know it, but also to do it. Do it. The word. Key verse concerning spiritual transformation is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It goes something like this. I'm paraphrasing very loosely. But the Apostle Paul there says that if we behold Christ, the Spirit will use our beholding of Christ to transform us into the image that we behold, which is the image of Christ. Therefore, open the scriptures looking for Christ, and as you see Christ, the Spirit is going to carry out a transformation process in your life 
so that you think more like Jesus and you act more like Jesus so that you do the word. The the word of God orders us into healthy relationships with God and each other. The word of God orders us into healthy relationships with God and each other. And sometimes this is difficult to do the word, but sometimes it's not difficult at all. Sometimes it's really easy. Uh, A while back, we were preaching through the Sermon on the Mount here at PBC, and I had that great passage in Matthew chapter 6 that begins, do not be anxious for your life. Well, that doesn't seem easy. That seems very hard. I'm anxious for my life. And Jesus says, do not be anxious for your life. Next verse, look at the birds. Now, I'll confess, I'd read, that, read those verses thousands of times, probably, thousands of times. It had never until that moment occurred to me to actually take Jesus literally. It had never occurred to me to actually go outside and look at birds. Look at the birds, he says. Look at the flowers. Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Do not be anxious. I cannot not be anxious by trying not to be anxious, but I can go outside and look at some birds, and if I'm looking at some birds, I'm probably going to be a little less anxious. Try concentrating on some birds for for a while and being anxious at the same time. So I went outside, and I started looking at birds more. I think I've been a little less anxious. I've been looking at flowers more. I think I've been a little less anxious. Look at the birds. Look at the flowers. I looked at the birds. I learned a few things. One of the things I learned is there are too many crows in this world. They've taken over the world. Maybe I should be anxious about that. <laughs> I don't know. So if the, if, if the word of God gives you something that's easy to do, well, do it. You'll be blessed for it. So do the word, seek the word, do the word. Finally, teach the word. Teach the word. If, if you get something from the word, pass it on. Of course, you don't have to be a pastor to do this or a teacher to do this. You just have to have something meaningful happen to you in the Word so that you can pass that on to someone else because if it's meaningful to you, it might be meaningful to someone else. So uh, I see Steve Zeisler there. Steve Zeisler was a pastor at this church for more than 40 years. That's got to be a record for some church somewhere, but 40 years. But I heard the the story through the years from Steve for many years about his first sermon here at PBC. I mean, it's right from this spot, so probably... I don't know, 45 years ago or something like a long time ago. And he was none, let's put it this way, Steve was none too impressed with that sermon. He, was, he, he actually called that first sermon, his first sermon here at PBC, wretched. <laughs> it was a wretched sermon. I wasn't here, so I don't know. But it was a comparison between David and Solomon. I'm thinking maybe about 15, 16, 17 years ago, Uh, Steve and I have a mutual friend by the name of Mark Mitchell, who was up until recently a pastor at Central Peninsula Church in Foster City. And Mark had just finished a uh, a doctorate in preaching. So uh, Steve and I and Danny Hall, who was the other preaching pastor at the time, we all drove up to to Foster City to meet with Mark. And maybe we could, maybe we thought, well, we could learn a few things. We've been around a while, but you, you know, you're never too old to learn. And indeed, Mark told us about what he'd learned, and I learned a few things, and some of those things I'm actually have incorporated into my preaching here. And at one point, I asked Mark, uh, what is it that motivates you in preaching? Why are you motivated to do this week after week? And he said one of the things that motivates him is the, 
is the hope and the possibility that any one sermon could change a life. That something, even one thing, a phrase, a word, something in a sermon has the possibility to change someone's life. It might only be one person out there on one day, but that's one of the things that motivates them. And then he says, for example, when I was at PBC years ago, I heard this sermon. And as he described this sermon, he talks about David and he talks about Solomon. And I recognize that as the very first sermon that Steve preached here at PBC. And Mark said, that sermon changed my life. That was the wretched one. (laughs) Now, Steve still thinks it's wretched, but he grants that God uses whatever God uses from God's word. Yeah, see, you just got to be faithful. You got to be faithful. You pass on the stuff that is meaningful to you from the word, and you never know how that can impact a life. When I get, to get, with, get, get together with Eric Soderberg, one of our elders, and he's camping out in whatever he's camping out in, he's talking about that. And whoever he gets together with, he's talking about what he's camping out in in the scriptures. I, there was a while there I was hearing an awful lot about Leviticus. It was one particular chapter in Leviticus. He spent three, four months in that particular chapter. I was hearing a lot about that. He was passing it on. So teach the word. Seek the word, do the word, teach the word. This is a virtuous cycle where each one contributes to the other so that by the end, when you're passing on the word, then you go, oh, okay, I need to go back into the word to seek the word again, to do the word, and to teach the word. Each of these aspects reinforce one another so that we are encouraged and inspired to do it all over again, to seek, to do, and to teach. So back to Ezra chapter 7. So Artaxerxes, the king, sends uh, Ezra to Jerusalem with this letter. And in this letter, he makes all sorts of provision for worship back in the temple. So he provides for him in all sorts of ways with money and gifts and says, use this, use this money and these gifts to buy the rams and the lambs for the offering and all that kind of stuff. And he wants to beautify the temple back in Jerusalem. And he sends this letter with him. Let's look at verse uh, 23. This is part of the letter. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. So Artaxerxes, like the other Persian kings before him, he covers all the bases. He worships his own gods, but the the, the Persians are kind of broad-minded. And they have this idea that, well, there are other gods out there and we better sort of make sure that they're happy as well. Especially they're concerned about the God of Israel. And Artaxerxes has this idea that he better make sure that the God of Israel is happy. In order to do that, then he, he, uh, he provides everything that Ezra needs for the worship of God back in Jerusalem. Verse 25. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom, uh, the wisdom of God that is in your hand, the word of God is in his hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strict, strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for the confiscation of his goods, or for imprisonment. 
He takes this really seriously. So Artaxerxes, a pagan king, values the law of the God of Israel. So much so that he says to Ezra, when you go back there, I want you to make the law of your God the law of the land in this particular province over which I rule. Wow, that's pretty heavy. He values the law of God, which isn't his God, right? But this is what, this is what Moses said. Actually, this is what God said through Moses back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6, that others, if you, are, if you follow this great, this great law that I am giving you, others are going to take notice. Listen to this from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6, regarding the statutes and the rules. The Lord says this, Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. God gives the people these great laws, this great word, and then if other people get wind of it, they'll get wind of how great God is, especially if you obey all of these rules and statutes. If you follow the Lord, other people then who don't know me, the pagans, might take notice. That's what happens here in the case of Artaxerxes. A pagan king takes notice. He sees what's happening in Ezra's life, who had set his heart to seek the word and to do the word and to teach the word. So if we seek the word and if we do the word, maybe those outside the faith will take notice. I mean, if we really do it, I mean, I mean really do it, like, like humbly, courageously. What is, the, what is the word calling us to do in humility, in courage, in love? If we become those people, maybe those from outside will say, ah, oh, where is this coming from? Is that coming from the Bible? I mean, you're living your lives based on the Bible? I thought the Bible created weird people but you seem to be loving and courageous and tender, brave. Chuck Colson was the founder of Prison Fellowship and the president of Prison Fellowship up until his death a few years ago. And he tells a story about uh, how uh, this pastor at one of the largest mainline churches in New York was very supportive of the ministry of Prison Fellowship and would send him $25 a month or $30 a month in support of the prison fellowship ministry. It was a great ministry, probably still going on, I'm I'm guessing, without Chuck's presence. Um, But the the mainline, the pastor of the mainline church had a problem. He had a problem with Chuck's view of the scriptures. He did not like like it that Chuck viewed the scriptures and, and, and saw them as inerrant. He did not like the doctrine of inerrancy. And he said, I like what you're doing, but I don't like this doctrine. I don't like what you believe. So he wrote him a letter along those lines. So what do you do with that? Chuck wrote him a letter back. And by the way, we also uphold the doctrine of inerrancy. The scriptures are inerrant. They've been breathed out by God. They are without error in the original autographs. All that God intended us for to get out of them, they are there. So Chuck wrote a letter back to the pastor And he said this, well, I replied to his letter by explaining that I do what I do precisely because the scriptures command me to do so. 
If I questioned the truth or authority of Scripture, I would not do it. So I wrote to him, the thing that you don't like about me is the thing that causes me to do what you do like. Wow. The pastor wrote back to him, doubled his monthly contributions. (laughs) He took notice. Here's someone who was doing the word, listening to the word and doing the word. Someone else took notice. So now Ezra finally, in the last few verses, responds to everything that is going on in Ezra chapter 7. Verse 27, blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the, the, hand of the Lord my God was on me. Once again, the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Jerusalem to go up with me. So Ezra then blesses the Lord, which means he praises God for all of his blessings, and his blessings in this, in this case concern how God has moved in the heart of this pagan king to beautify the temple, to arrange for all of these sacrifices. So the hand of the Lord was on Ezra. The hand of the Lord, God's empowering presence was on him because the law of God was in his hand. And the law of God, of course, can be any, in anyone's hand, but in this case, it's in Ezra's hand because it's in his heart, because he set his heart to seek the word and to do the word and to teach the word. And there are these daunting tasks before him. Go to Jerusalem. That is not easy to do. Gather these people Go to Jerusalem. When you get back to Jerusalem and you're in the land and there's these opposing peoples there, you got to gather the people of God and lead them into worship. Teach them the word. Lead them into worship. Daunting tasks. But he takes courage. The hand of the Lord is upon him, so he takes courage and he does it and he believes that the Lord will make a way. About 35 years ago, I felt like the Lord was stirring in my heart and that I really needed to seek the Word. I hadn't done so up to that point. I'd read the Word. I'd gone to church for about 12 years or so. But at that point, something was stirring in my heart, and I knew that I had to seek the Word. I knew I had to seek the Lord in the Word. So I set about doing so. And it opened up for me a whole new world. Journeys I never thought I could have taken. Tasks I never thought I could have undertaken. Perhaps the same has been true for you. Perhaps the same will be true for you if you set your heart to seek the word. So set your heart to seek the word and the hand of the Lord, God's empowering presence, will be with you, will be on you. And there's no telling what God will call you to do, and what he will enable you to do. At this point, I'd like to invite up uh, Jim Leonard, a friend of mine and a friend of many of yours. And uh, Jim told me this story about 20 years ago, and it has to do with sometimes doing the Word of God is not that difficult, and also, it's a whole lot of fun. 
One of the things I appreciate about Jim is it's not too complicated for him. He does the word, and he loves doing the word, and it gives him great joy. So listen to this story from Jim. Well, like Ezra, I was sent on a quest. Uh, my wife asked me to go to the store. It was like in the early 90s. We had small children. She asked me to go to the store and buy diapers. Uh, but that's not my quest. Um, you see, when I got to the store, the Target, I um, went to the aisle, and the type of diapers we buy, they didn't have. Well, now, I'm not authorized. I don't have the approval. I, I can't make decisions like that on which diaper to buy if it's not that one. <laughs> so <laughs> that creates a problem. So I thought, well, I'll go outside, there's, you know, a phone, and I'll call her. This is before I had a cell phone, and I don't think there were many at that time, because outside of Target, there were two working phones, and you can't find two working phones nowadays, right? And there was a person at each phone, so now I have to sit and wait for them to finish. So I sat down on a bench, and um, I'm just, you know, looking around. It was a dimly lit little place uh, outside the store, and I look next to me, and there's a, a roll of stuff, and I don't know what it is, and it's wrapped in a rubber band, and I pick it up, and it's a, a receipt from the store, but it's all wound up. And I thought, well, how many receipts are there? I mean, you know, how th this is pretty thick. And I looked at the middle of it. Well, now I'm colorblind, and it wasn't lit very well, but I know that's money. I mean, I can tell those are dollar bills. And so... It's like, okay, somebody lost this. I don't know who. I'd like to get it back to them. Ah, the quest. So I look at the people on the phone thinking maybe it's one of them. But how do you know? You can't just say, hey, did you, um, did you lose this or lose money? Did you? I don't know. So I watched them, and I, when they got off the phone, it just didn't seem like it was them. So I went in the store. And I asked for the manager, and of course, that causes a kerfuffle. They're like, whoa, what do you want the manager for? What's the problem? What do you need, Ron? And it's like, no, I just need the manager. Person comes over, I explain the situation. She looks at the receipt and says, wow, this person spent $700 here. Um, the person at the, the clerk will know who it was. So she went over to the register, because it has a number or something, and she talked to the person and said, yes, I remember that guy. And so she counted the money. And I'm like, wow, it was $660, a lot of $100 bills. I'm like, goodness, somebody really wants, must want this. They're going to come back. So I felt kind of funny. I had to leave it there. I go to the door, and I'm walking outside because I have to use the phone to call my, and you know that. Um, <laughs> so I go out, and I see a car, and there's a guy in the passenger side, and he's looking. Man, he is scanning the area where I was. And I thought, oh, that's the guy. So I went over there quickly, and I said, uh, did you lose something? He goes, yeah, man, a lot of money. And I said, well, it's waiting for you in the store. And he's like, what? And he jumps out of the car, and he runs in the store. And I'm thrilled. I mean, I, I, I did the quest. I found the guy. I got to give him back his money. I didn't want to keep it because it, that would be his money. You know, I'd feel awkward having his money. If I find a dime on the street, different story. But this was serious money. <laughs> So I completed my quest. I didn't do so good on the diapers. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Jim. 
Uh, Jim actually uh, told me the, between services, said that two years ago he found $800. So moral is, if you're going to lose some money, lose it around Jim. Or number two, maybe God has just called Jim to find money and then track down. And that was much more complicated, trying to track down the owner of the $800. So, but um, really, it's, to do the word like Jim did, it's, it can be fun. It can be invigorating, right? So we make it out to be really complicated. It's not so complicated. We make it out to be really difficult. Sometimes it is really hard and challenging. But sometimes it's not that hard. It's not that difficult. And it's a whole lot of fun. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this great text, Ezra chapter 7. Thank you for giving us, especially me, Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, which I've camped on for a lot of years and has motivated me to not only be a teacher of the Word, but to seek the Word and to do the Word. So we thank you so much. And we pray, Lord, that you would use this morning, by your Holy Spirit, to empower us to seek you in the Word And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to find amazing things so that we could do the word and also to pass it on. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to build our lives upon him, upon his word and the power of his Holy Spirit. So let's sing this together as we declare that in this place.